Welcome to another episode of Blood, Sweat and Fears, the ultimate podcast where current and former sports people and the people who manage, coach and look after them discuss the highs and lows of elite sport and beyond as we try and get a window into exactly what they were feeling and how they coped at strategic points of their journey. I'm Mark Clement, alongside me is Scott Ward, a former professional footballer and the man behind EY's personal performance programme, Building a Better Working World. And on this episode of Blood, Sweat and Fears, we're talking football management, one of the Toughest, most pressurised professions on earth, yet still seen as the magic elixir to stay in the game by so many retiring players. Despite the fact that the statistics at the point we're recording this episode are that 50 of the current 91 Premier League or EFL managers have been in charge for less than a year. And one of them, the former Burton Albion, Birmingham City, Derby County, Stoke City, and now Millwall manager, Gary Rowett, is our special guest. Were you anywhere near aware of that start? 50 out of 91. When you said a year, Clem, I thought, that sounds such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else listens to that I and mean, says, what that, a ridiculous scenario. That but is nuts, isn't it? it? It is nuts, but I think, you know, when you look, I mean... Those stats are obviously incredibly up to date, but when you hear similar stats over a period of time, because obviously if you're in the role, you're kind of aware of, of, of the the um, the nature of the, the the precarious nature of the job. You accept it for what it is, you know, because if you wanted longevity and and a, um, a perhaps slightly uh, more balanced job. And you probably wouldn't come into football management in so the first place. So you just have to accept that that is part and parcel of the job and have the coping mechanisms to deal with it. Someone told me. Someone told me a long time ago. Someone said to me that um, being sacked is being sacked from any job. I think at one point or another, and maybe in some professions, would be clusters a little bit of a stigma. Um, in football management, I think it's just part of the. It's part of the journey. It's part of the job. It's it's part of what it is. You know. I think the. Uh, the only time I was probably really aware of it was when I f took my first role at Burn Albion as manager, um, because at that point you know that if this job doesn't last long, this is probably my career over. You know, so that is a real pressure when you first start out. You know that you've got to make it count, um, and I think you you feel you still feel the pressure after sort of you know three, four. I can't remember how many jobs I've got, I've had, so I'd have, I'd have to I'll you'd have to count them for me. One, two, um, three, four. This is your fifth. Fifth. So. So I think now you perhaps feel in a different position where it's more, you know, you're less worried about your job stability and more worried about doing a good job, you know, because that's that's really um, the situation you're in. Mm. I, I, the, the one thing I want to know is why you never seem to outwardly show any signs of pressure. I've known you quite a while now and I always get exactly the same person, no matter when you're on a high because your club's doing well, no matter whether you've got an elevation to a, another club that's moved you up the food chain or whether you're, you're on the bones of your backside struggling at the other end. How come you're you like this all the time? I think it's uh, I think there's two reasons. I mean, one because that's partly who I am as a person. I mean, I've been brought up in a very um, uh, not not a high pressured sort of environment as a kid, but my dad was a prison governor. My brother was in the Marines. I had a very stable life, um, so I've, I've been able to cope with pressure in, in terms of some of the things that would happen in a football environment because I've probably been gr grown up in that type of autocratic scenario, that autocratic system, which is maybe why a lot of people perhaps struggle a little mm. bit nowadays because mm. it's, it's it's less autocratic. Um, 
and I think I've learned different ways to try to to cope with it. It's interesting that probably Stoke was the first time um, that when I left, I felt as though I didn't have that pressure anymore. So so therefore, I was aware that I was under probably more pressure and strain than I felt I was at the time. But but generally, I just try to I try to rationalize. I'm quite a level person. I don't tend to. You're about some people who are. Um, you know, have massive highs and massive lows. I don't really do that because I'm always thinking about what can we do better. I use a little bit of a performance cycle the way I work. So no matter what happens, I look at once we've performed, it's okay, what do we need to do next to then put into training, to then see if we can improve, to then see if we can then go and play better. So I try to be rational. It's obviously a hard role to do that. And also as a player, I enjoyed managers that came in on a Monday morning and, and almost inspired the players again to try and then be better. And I think it's always hard to expect players to perform with a, a real enthusiasm and intrinsic drive um, if you don't outwardly show that yourself. So, so, so maybe those are some of the, some of the reasons. Um, but certainly in my last role, I felt, I felt as though when it ended, I felt as though there was a big release, which obviously was that pressure manifesting itself that perhaps even I didn't realise was, was there. It was, a, it was almost a... Well, you don't want to lose your job, but it was almost a relief that you... The time yeah, do you know what? You, do, you, do, you never want to lose your job because you never want to admit that you haven't done the job properly. But I think there's certain times, and if some managers are honest, and I, and I, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but and I know this might sound terrible if you're a fan out there that it's your club and you, you, you love that club with so much passion, but it comes a point where you feel like, I don't know if there's anything else I can do to, to, to improve so if people have made their mind up it's almost like just let me move let me go and move on to the next part because end of the day we're managers are people managers are still you know if you feel like something's coming to end particularly if you're that type of character you almost want that to then finish so you can then think about how you can improve for the next one um but you, but you never want to lose your job you always think you can improve results or whatever that is i mean i've lost my job in different scenarios when that's Results haven't always been necessarily um, the thing that have cost you a job, if you like. So, so, but I think that's the scenario. I don't think anyone wants to lose a job, but I think you get to a point where sometimes there's a, there is an element of relief when it happens because then you can move on um, as a person, which is which is you know just as important. Did it hurt as much this last time with Birmingham? You had a load of public opinion with you oh my goodness what have they done that for that's just ridiculous with yeah. Stoke it came off the back of let's be honest by your own uh, by your own words the target was promotion yeah absolutely. but it didn't, didn't work out so but 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 is the pain does it get less the more times it happens to you um again I think you know with a sort of background of my upbringing the way I am as a person the way I am as a manager in terms of that kind of quite a linear sort of view on what we're doing and, and, and how we're trying to improve. I think I've been the same when I've been given decisions. I remember being told at Birmingham that I was losing my job. It was a pr surprise. The first thing I wanted to do was get to the training ground so I could tell the players and staff myself. Um, and then the next thing I wanted to do was work out how I could improve. And, and I know this sounds pretty crass and probably, probably it, it does hurt, but at the same time, I'm the sort of person, once something's happened, all I focus on is what do I need to do to, you know, because it's done. It's like a result. And that, that's what I mean with a result. Once a result's happened, for me, you know, you, it, it serves no purpose to fester on it 
all, all you can, the only the only positive that can come out of that is if you learn from it and take it forward and and do something about it. I, I suppose is what I'm saying. So it still hurts, but I try to use that. I got told I got told when I was released um, from Everton. Well, I was sold, but I was released effectively from Everton. And Joe Raw made a comment to me, and he was actually right. He was right at the time, so I've got no problem. He said to me, I'm letting you go, you haven't got the eye of the tiger. And I just think what he meant is at that point in my career, I hadn't quite found the, the mechanics of what it needed psychologically or whatever to perform at that sort of level. I try to move on very quickly, and I know that sounds a little bit... No, that's I how I deal with it, maybe. That's maybe my way of dealing with things, you know. As, as, as Gary found one of the magic formulas, that self-evaluation quite quickly and putting stuff behind you but and moving on, being willing to do that. Because a lot of us won't do that. A lot of us like to surround ourselves with our our great achievements and the thing that things that make us feel warm and comfortable, not exa- examine too much our deficiencies. I mean, in football, we work in a world of gratification. So if you win, people want to ride that coattail of success... Um, and if you lose, then we want to put other people down because, again, it gives us some to, a bit of an impetus to talk about. I think what Gary's explained here is about being clinical. And if you're a club owner um, or if you're managing any business, if you've got somebody in charge that's steering your ship that can be clinical, good or bad, that can have a very a balanced opinion that brings consistency. I mean, Gary, you know yourself, players, that's what they strive for around them. They want, they're, they're fairly fairly impressionable people a lot of the time the the environment they've been developed in um they've probably been told that everything's great for a very long time they need that if you like that hand of command to bring a balance to their life and so when they're in the training ground having a manager that can invigorate them on a monday um but ensure that they remain consistent with their approach and their level methods of training it that that's an opportunity for them to elevate their performance because they know what they're stepping from when you've got highs and lows, it's hard to bring that level of evaluation, I think, because you don't really know where your starting point is. Whereas if you if it's a plateau, and therefore you know what your good looks like, you know what your bad looks like, but you know what needs to remain, there's always a very, very good point of evaluation. That's where things like data um, to help remove that level of emotional bias in management and coaching that can sometimes creep in will can only benefit the players, the club, the ethos, the culture that you're trying to get people to buy into. Because, again, it means that they know what they're, they're buying into as a player for the good and the bad. I, I think, as a, certainly as a player myself, I mean, I always found that I suppose everyone's different. It's always hard to judge a lot of other people on how you are yourself. But I always had that kind of intrinsic. I always knew. I remember going, I remember going running on a Sunday sometimes and I felt as I wasn't sharp or I wasn't fit or I've not played well enough on a Saturday. So I always had that little drive to... You didn't. Nobody needed to tell me whether I was good or bad in the game. I knew myself, and I couldn't sort of kid myself. But, but also as a manager, I think I've, I mean when I first started a long time. I mean, I've been coaching now for sort of fifteen years, um, and I remember when I first started, I wanted to try and put myself in a position where I could where I could um, have more clarity on what I, what I wanted to be as a manager. And I, and uh, it's funny as a player because you would never do it, but I mean, I, re- I remember reading so much. I remember reading so much stuff, just different, different stuff. You know, psychology books, self-help books, um, coaching books, um, business management books, a- a- anything. And I think over that period of time, you just learn little bits all the time. You find a little strategy that maybe helps you deal with it. And then in the end, I'm not saying you ever get to a point where, but but you at least get an idea of what you want to be. You know, and I always felt as I wanted to be a little bit of a learner. As, a, as a, a young coach, and I've took that into management, so I'm always quite open-minded about 
what it is that can get us to the next level. Um, but I think by being a learner, you always look at things objectively. Yeah. You always look at things perhaps with a little bit less passion in some ways, um, which helps you then move forward. So I think that's some of the things that have probably shaped me being like that. You know, I don't think I'm, I don't, if you'd have asked me at 20, what you're going to be like as a manager, maybe I wouldn't have been the same type of person. But I think you do find little strategies, like like you've said, it's hard for players. Some players don't. Maybe sometimes it's not just. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's that you know you're coaching players uh, the tactical side of a game in terms of how you want to play. But I think one of the biggest challenges is is, is helping coach players to to manage their own performance and, and manage how they deal with certain things because you've got probably thirty well. Millwall, we haven't. We've got probably about eighteen players, but but often you've got twenty five players, different individuals. That it would be almost impossible to try and do that on your own to help each one. But but it's that, an interesting, it's a fascinating that. thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's. So the, one of the reasons why we're doing what we are is that we can't expect players to make better decisions if they don't have the information to make those from. And the only way you can do that is by giving them information so that they can see the picture on their own basis. Because on on a Saturday, while you're trying to create a pattern or a rhythm to them for them to play with, they're still having to make their own decisions. And so by empowering them with more information around business management processes, the, the rationale behind your why you're asking them to do that is only going to get more commitment in return. It just seems in football, especially, we've been quite scared of that because it's been seen as a distraction. Whereas we know it's going to enhance them because the more they learn, the more they can absorb when you're talking to them, which means they're going to be able to make quicker decisions under pressure which is then going to increase their performance naturally, and so again, we're getting there slowly, um, and we do it. We do it in other sports around the world, um, but it's hard because football's been around for such a long time. Those t- cycles of trends are normally around ten years. Same with the type of player that uh, managers sign. It you know, it used to be a quick centre half. Then it was you want a centre half that can really think and play from the back, and then you've got you've got wing backs that can overlap, and then you actually you want your right and your left back to stand still and you'll play. It's it's a very trend-driven business, and I would say I would should, I'm surmising as a manager that's got to be a really difficult challenge at times is, is buying in to your ethos and, and especially when you're dealing with club owners on making sure that they buy into you for the longer term and they're not swayed by the wider market when they see club X or Y one in a few games and they say why aren't we playing like that? Well, I think again you have to be true to what you believe in because ultimately, no matter how what type of strategy you have in developing your players and, and, and building that level of performance on the pitch, whether that be, you know, tactical, psychological, whatever it is, you know, all in, encompassed in one, hopefully. But um, I think ultimately, you know, the problem with this is it's probably like any business. You have to see some results, you know, and, and unfortunately, some of, the, some of the work you do can't guarantee those results early on. But unfortunately, so, so, I, think, so I think as a manager, sometimes... You have to kind of build some of those layers into the, into your practices, but maybe not as much. So to, for me, it's always the same. So you go into somewhere, you try to find a way to get results around first how first and foremost, first and foremost around how you want to play, and then you just you just drip feeding little bits in along the way because you know it's very difficult to go in and say, right, this is what we're going to do, Mr. Chairman. Can I basically have three? I know I'm talking stupidly here, but can I have three or four years to build it? We might see some results in six months, but maybe not in the first. So I think you have to do it all together. Yeah. And because it's it's ironic because it's the culture and the way you work and some of these things that we're talking about that, that will help build your performances, improve them. 
but it's also you've got but you've also you've got to get an instant it's like the impact management you have to get that instantly as well in order to build long enough time but that's the danger now, isn't it? when you get a new manager course, coming, we expect you to win the first game because you've got a kickback but that's been disproved that's been disproved hasn't it well a bit, i remember reading something uh, an article about business and someone said to me that if you need to if you wanted to turn a business around you're mm. talking about something like two to three years minimum before you know you could some of those things start to happen but i think the ramp up period as well if we if if an employee in a regular job swaps roles the the ramp up period to be at full productivity is 9 months yeah, too which is wow. which is probably the entire period you get so that's a teacher taking a job living in Tunbridge Wells and moving to Aberdeen, it can take nine months to fully ramp up to them. But I suppose that industry would expect that and appreciate that, whereas our industry, like you're talking about some of these confirmation biases that go over years that, you know, you, you'll see one person go in and, and, and have an instant impact. Like, you know, when, when we went in at Birmingham, I think our first 10 results, we won something like seven games, which was incredible for a team that was down the bottom of the league. Whereas we're going at Stoke and the challenges are different and we didn't have an instant impact. It doesn't mean to say you haven't done an equally good job. It doesn't mean to say, you know, you've done a very good job. But the point being, it, it is very, very difficult. I mean, there's, there's, there's things where people, I've, I've heard of these transfer windows for managers during the season. I just think we're in the industry. You accept it. You hope you've got enough time. Maybe you have to manage in a way that perhaps gives you more time. I was going to say, have you compromised your ethos, your culture at strategic points in your career where maybe you've lost two or three in a row and thought, oh, I need to get three points on the board. So you've just gone, do you know what? I don't care if I'd, I would normally like to play this way. Saturday's priority is three points and we'll do whatever it takes to do it. Uh, yeah, I think you do You do that at times anyway. I think you do that at times because it's about results. You know, So there's times when you want to play in a certain way and there's other games when you think, you know what, we might have to just chuck some of those principles out the window to get a result because the game maybe dictates something slightly different. Um, I think my biggest, I think my biggest lesson in football that I've learned in terms of that time, slightly different, but in terms of that period of time, was at Stoke, where I felt as though the club was a club that needed to almost be taken on, head on, and that's my nature, anyway. Um, and I probably lost my patience with one or two things, which then put me on the back foot with the fans. And I learned very quickly that, you know, it's a fan's lifeblood. It's a fan's club. It's not your club. And I wasn't, I never suggested it was, but as soon as you cross that line, mm -hmm. then your time goes out the window. So I think there are times where, you know, you have perhaps have to maybe accept you can't win every battle. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's the bit that gives you the time. So maybe it is a compromise at times. And I don't like that because I think you you pay to do your job, regardless of whether you ruffle people's feathers or not. But I think more and more you think, well, if you need that time, you know, for me this next job, I want the time to build something good, you know. So maybe there are just one or two compromises. Well, I just wonder if there are too many unrealistic thoughts that got there, especially from supporters. I made a list of football management characteristics. See what you can relate to here. Often working in an environment where ambition outstrips resources. Yeah. Past achievements are no marker for current expectations. Another tick. Under ever increasingly autocratic owners, so they want to have a little fiddle here and there or worse. 
Yeah, no comment. Okay. Uh, no names either. Uh, every decision microscopically scrutinized, you know? Yeah, yeah. social media as well, isn't it? Well, there's that. Of often told with frank brutality where you're going wrong. I mean, it can be from the bloke standing behind you in the dugout. Yeah. Often paid less at certain levels than some of the people working for you, which turns the hierarchy of working life upside down. I mean, I can keep going on these. Often have key assets either break down or removed at the blink of an eye so they could be sold or your your star player gets injured. Sometimes you can't make public the events that lead you to certain decisions. I mean, goodness me. I mean, it's a... I'm not uh, applying for this job, wherever uh, this well, is. But, this sounds but terrible. Isn't, but isn't, isn't yeah. that just the sort of encapsulation of football management? Now, us in everyday life, we couldn't work in these circumstances. No. Your average underwriter could not work in those circumstances. I think it's the challenge as well about just the, the general sector, knowing that around 70% of, of a group of people are going to be out of work at any time, means there's probably got to be a little bit more to make sure that your life is sustainable beyond. You're normalising this, you two. But that's, that's how I think it has to be. You, you have to... It's not normal. Look, you're not working in, in the same environment that, you know, that, that I do today, for sure. But that doesn't mean you can't implement the same strategies and beliefs into how you apply your work or how you manage expectations because we we live in a world where society gives us expectations as a manager going into mill now the club will, the club the supporters and everybody else that can contribute will have an expectation of Gary and his team that doesn't mean you have to meet them or take them or accept them and the challenge is at times we allow that to override our beliefs or our contribution because we feel we want to appease other people's demands but if that goes against what you believe in and what you want to develop, then again, as I said earlier, you've got to be a very strong individual. Believe in your ethos, believe in the culture you're trying to develop. Because I, I think that, you again, you're dealing with people that want to be led. And so if it's new and if it's, it's exciting, we also need to educate people that watch football. You know, this is why I'm doing it. This is, this is how I'm dealing with it. <laughs> Good luck I know, that. I know. But it's the same for the players and the athletes we're dealing with. We're helping to educate them to have a better conversation so that players can come and speak openly and share their thoughts on the landscape, on their club, on how they've played, good or bad. But currently, we're not developing them so they can accept whether something's good or bad. And if you can't compute it, if you can't, if you can't talk about it, how can we expect that dialogue with fans and society to change? And so it's... it's Dude, I think the other thing with that as well is I always think it's, it's, it's understanding the pressure and understand what... what actually is that pressure so those things you've spoke about there you know at least you could rationalize it into what it is you know it's only it's only how you deal with that situation that defines whether it's pressure or not isn't it i mean you know I, again i know it's a very generic thing but you know is that any more pressure than and i'm not suggesting you can compare the two but you know a single parent having to work yeah. three jobs do you know what i mean yeah. and i look at something like that yeah. and i think well yeah. actually if you define it against that it's not really pressure it's no. not pressure, it's is it? You know, we're high, it? Yeah. It's relativity. Yeah. We're high, highly paid. Um, you know, we, we've got a very good life in terms of the hours that we have to work. I know they're different type of hours. I know if there's a 24-7 nature to it, but you're not sat in an office for from 8 in the morning to late at night. Um, so I think it's just defining those pressures. I think if you if you can define and segment the pressures, at least you can have a strategy to try and deal with them. And then, and then as a person, how you then that manifests on yourself... Yeah. 
that's up to you. I mean, you know. We're enjoying our chat with Gary Rowett so much, and we hope you are too, that we're going to make this a two-parter. So for the time being, thanks to Gary, to Scott, and indeed to you for listening. A reminder, we're always recording new episodes of Blood, Sweat and Fear, so do please listen out for news of future guests. And check out our previous episodes. Dame Tanny Gray-Thompson, Matthew Pinson, and Catherine Granger, Ryan Giggs, to name but three lots of our previous guests. All episodes of Blood, Sweat and Fears are available on iTunes and via the EY website by visiting ey.com forward slash UK forward slash PAS forward slash podcast. For more information about the program itself, please visit our website ey.com forward slash UK forward slash personal performance program. I'm Mark Clement, brought to you by EY, building a better working world. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Blood, Sweat and Fears, the ultimate podcast with a focus on athlete experiences, readiness and preparation for life in and out of sport. Goodbye for now. Listen out for part two.